Welcome everybody to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, Episode 7. On this episode, we're talking about fad diets. We're going to go through what's popular today and how they're all biologically unsustainable. Alright, so over the next few weeks, I am going to cover diet extremes. We're going to start with the most popular fad diets. We're going to talk about the ins and outs of each one, what's good about them, what's bad about them, and then we're going to get into the most extreme versions of those fad diets. All right, so what are we talking about when we hear the word fad diets? Usually, at the root of all this comes the juggling of macronutrients. And macronutrients are fats, proteins, carbohydrates. So really, all of these diets just manipulate and toggle between higher and lower versions of macronutrients. If you think about some of the diets that have been popularized over the last couple of decades, then they all have something to do with juggling these macronutrients. Remember the Atkins diet? So that was a low-carb, high-fat diet where you're just swapping out higher fat content for a lower-carb content. Or the predicate diet was kind of the reverse of that, where it was high-carbohydrate, low-fat. Essentially, they were the same diets, just a flip side. And if you want to go to super extremes right now, the popular thing is veganism. Or on the flip side of that, being a carnivore. So what's going on? Why are we flip-flopping back and forth and juggling these macronutrients? Well, if you remember back to episode 6, this is all largely due to this idea of agriculture and these mass farming practices that we've been doing these past 10,000 years. You can only do this type of diet if you're living in an agricultural community, and more specifically in a modern agricultural community where you have a surplus of macronutrients. These diets were not possible when you were living in smaller hunter-gatherer groups, meaning this, these types of diets go against your biological norms of your body and therefore aren't biologically sustainable for you to carry on eating these very extreme types of diets. I mean, at once upon a time, we were all opportunistic omnivores. That is how we survived, and, and it's the very reason you're sitting here today. I mean, if your ancestors didn't take advantages of their natural landscape and take food from the natural landscape, whether it was plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, then you would not be alive. They would not have enough energy to procreate. And I'm not saying that there wasn't differences in people's diet. But the way they based their diets and the differences in those diets was due to the geography and due to the seasons where people gathered and lived. It wasn't about counting calories and juggling macronutrients and micronutrients to try to optimize physiology. That was never the purpose. I mean, let's be honest. If you tried to survive on, let's say, a vegan diet out in the wild you would die very quickly. There's no way you could come up with enough calories to sustain your life. The only way vegans survive is because of modern agriculture. And the same thing could be said for the carnivore diet and only eating meat. Yes, there was cultures in 
the Arctic Circle that largely lived off of meat, but they also ate organ meats and they ate the intestines and the contents of those intestines. To be able to get meat, that means the undulates that were on the landscape had to eat plants. Those are vegetarians. So clearly there was plants on the landscape and those plants were used for medicinal purposes. Not only plants, there was fungal medicines used. There were lichens, which is a hybrid species of plant, fungi, and protist. So there was techniques and tools developed for the bioregion that you were in to optimize your diet and longevity into the future. And then you take places like the equator, where a lot of fruit is grown all year round. You have access to a lot of fruit, which you need. Because the UV is so intense at the equator, then you need protection for your skin. So you don't end up getting free radical damage from the sun and end up getting skin cancer. So in other words, you took the resources and used them in a sustainable way in the bioregion that you lived in. And that's what your biology and genetics are adapted to do and still adapted to do. So the fact that we're running around debating the merits of veganism and carnivore diet is a little bit absurd because the fact that we have the luxury and the privilege to even talk about what a quote-unquote healthy diet is or the the best diet for humans is a bit ridiculous. Anytime you go to the extremes of anything, it's going to be essentially inherently unsustainable. And that is the same thing when it comes to your diet. So really, the more you can focus on eating seasonally in your own bioregion, that is going to be the best genetic and biological diet that you can possibly eat. It's going to adapt you to your landscape like nothing else will. You will truly become a part of your landscape eating the foods off of that landscape. You'll build your tissues and bones and organs out of that food. Which really brings us back around to fad diets and how they are virtually unsustainable and why people never stick to them. And the reason why people a lot of times hook onto these fad diets is because they feel unhealthy. A lot of times they're sick. You know, you take autoimmune disease, for example, and there's thousands of stories of people switching to a vegan diet and feeling amazing, which can definitely happen. These diet, any extreme diet like veganism or carnivore, when you're limiting the amount in the different types of genetics and the different foodstuffs, that are coming into your body, it's going to suppress the immune system. These Essentially, these very strict, limited diets are immunosuppressants. They dull down the immune response. And so, of course, you're going to feel better if you have an immune system issue, like an autoimmune disease. And so, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for veganism or even carnivore. Because there may be, but you need to be able to come out of that too. You can't get so rigid in your ideology or your religion, essentially, that you try to impose that onto everybody else. Because biology is very individualistic, and you need to choose the right balance that works for you. Remember back to the 1990s, when the low-fat craze was kind of at the height of popularity? So what the food industry did essentially was they took all these higher fat snack foods, these ultra processed foods, and they replaced the fat with sugar, meaning that 
they didn't make them healthier. They just juggled some macronutrients around and called them low fat. It was essentially a marketing ploy. And that's what you really need to keep in mind with any of these fad diets that you're seeing. Any of the really popular diets, people are profiting millions of dollars off of these every year. It's an industry developed around these diets. And they're looking to take advantage of people, essentially. That's how they make their money. And so if you're not very careful, it's really easy to get roped into thinking that this is the newest and latest and greatest thing to be eating. But what we know from this kind of 1990s ultra low fat is that replacing fat with sugar isn't any healthier. Matter of fact, it's worse. And we're just now starting to realize that you need good fats in your body. You need fat. You need cholesterol because it flips itself into a steroid in your body. And that's what builds the tissue and keeps your immune system robust and strong and active. And really, as it turns out, the sugar industry was the one that funded a lot of that research that went into these low-fat diets. So they were the ones that really stood to make the profit back then. And it's just now coming to light that some of these mega food industries are, what, in it for themselves? Is that really a huge surprise? That when you make a massive industry, you need to create a bit of a craze around it, and you need to sell the products that you're manufacturing? I mean, it makes sense. Every big organization does this, except when you're doing it with food, and you're trying to do it with nutrition, then a lot of times people's health is on the line, and that becomes an issue. And if you want an example that's more recent, look to veganism. That is a $14 billion industry, and it's projected to triple in the next 10 years. So you have things coming out like Beyond Burger Meat, which is loaded with a bunch of processed grains and a bunch of fillers that wreak havoc on the gut and your microbiome. So when looking at these, remember that there's always a financial side to these. There's always a financial benefit. And a lot of times that outweighs the nutritional benefit. And this is going to be kind of a general overview of what even fad diets are. In the coming weeks, I'm going to kind of pair up diets against each other, and we're going to get into more specifics of each diet. But I just kind of wanted to run you guys through what fad diets are and what, what's going on with this whole kind of diet industry. Because diet, I think a lot of people think that diet means you need to restrict certain things. But the actual definition of a diet is just what you eat, the food you put in your body. That's what a diet is. And I think a lot of people don't quite know what that means. I mean, like I alluded to earlier, a lot of people make it an ism. They make it an identity or a lifestyle, right? Think about <laughs> the kinds of diets, the extreme diets especially, where people are building careers and 
building a following and being an influencer, whatever that means, off of a very strict, rigid protocol of the food that they're eating. And a lot of times these diets carry a lot of emotional charge. I mean, if you think about how intimate it is to eat, you're literally consuming other genetics and they become a part of your body. They fill every cell of your body. You don't have that connection with anything else on this planet. Of course they're going to be emotionally charged. Of course people are going to become heated and debate the merits of what they're putting into their body and what they're building their body with. My approach to this and my approach to nutrition is of a balanced one and one that factors in every kingdom of life. There are six kingdoms of life. It's animal, plant, fungal, bacterial, algae, and protist. And that last kingdom you may not have heard of, but it's kind of a catch-all kingdom for the species that don't fit neatly into one of those other categories. So, for example, I talked about lichen being a bit of a hybrid species. So that has a, it's classified as a protist um, in the kind of kingdoms of life. That has a fungal component to it, a plant component to it, and an algae component to it. Um, So it's kind of this um, kingdom of life where they don't really know where to place things, so they just kind of throw things in that that kingdom. But it's an important one. Um, It's essentially kind of a hybrid species kingdom in the food world anyway. Um, So by eating from all of these kingdoms of life, all these different varied kingdoms of life, then you are supplying your body with all of the nutrients that you can pull from a landscape. And you can tweak ratios here and there due to seasonality, which you should be doing. I often say that vegans should be vegans in the springtime for about two months when you have fresh greens coming up. I mean, we've talked a little bit about that in previous episodes where when there's plants, you should be eating them, a ton of them. In the wintertime, you could switch more to a meat-based diet. So you're getting those healthy fats, and you're preparing your body for spring, and you're preparing your body for a lot of plants in the spring. So you're toggling these things in an intelligent way that's been done for the last 300,000 years or so, since Homo sapiens have been on the landscape in our current form. That's what you should be doing. And the fact that we get so rigid and try to spend years eating out of one or maybe two of these kingdoms of life gets to be a problem. It gets to be a problem on a nutritional and cellular level. And there is a diet that maybe started out with pretty good intentions in kind of factoring in a more naturalistic diet that has been eaten for, you know, thousands of years, which is the paleo diet. And you guys may have seen kind of paleo labels on different foods or heard about the paleo diet. Um, When I first heard of this, I got pretty excited. I had just started into my nutrition degree 
And I was thinking, oh man, this may be kind of a turning point for kind of fad diets. Maybe this will be put to rest a little bit. But as I kept following it more and more over the last seven or eight years, um, it's become pretty clear that really it was, it became a marketing tool again, basically, is what it became. Um, There are good merits about it, don't get me wrong. Um, And it's a better fad diet, you could say, than some of them out there. It's less extreme and a little more balanced, but it's centered around domesticated food products, whether it's cattle or plants. Um, It has no component of food being acquired in and off of a wild landscape, which I think misses a big piece of what humans should be consuming. Anytime you can get food out of any of these kingdoms off of a natural landscape, it is always going to be higher in nutrition and have a better medicinal value. Period. Bar none. Always. There's no exceptions to that rule. So if you are looking for the best nutrition possible, then pull it off of a truly wild landscape. Obviously, with industrialization and what we've done to our landscape, you need to be a little bit more careful. So when I say pull it off of a wild landscape, make sure there isn't any chemical pollutants or anything like that sitting in the soil because that's not a wild landscape. So just be careful, but know that wild foods are always going to be higher in nutrition because they have to get through the seasons. They have to get through these yearly processes of the elements. And we've talked a lot about the elements. We know how brutal they can be. And the fact that a food can stand up and reproduce itself year after year in those elements, of course it's going to be better for your body to take in than some pampered hydroponic lettuce that's been grown in a factory. Of course it's going to have more nutrients in it. It has to defend itself against bugs and predators and everything else. It's going to have a higher medicinal value. If you look at, let's say, blueberries, for example. If you look at wild blueberries versus cultivated blueberries, and they can be organic blueberries. Let's compare wild versus organic blueberries. The wild version has sometimes triple the amount of nutrients in it than an organic cultivated species because they're grown to be bigger. Typically, the organic variety is grown to be bigger. And what this does is it creates what's called a dilution effect. So anytime a fruit especially grows bigger, the skins that hold a lot of the flavonoids and most of the vitamins and minerals get thinner because they're stretched. Just like if somebody's obese, your skin gets stretched, right? And you get stretch marks and the skin gets torn and gets thinner, right? No different. So these blueberries that are grown to be bigger and look better for a supermarket are actually less nutritious because what then fills in with those when the skins get big is water content fills in with those, which 
has no actual nutritional value. So essentially you're diluting out the nutrients to grow them bigger. And we see that time and time again in domesticated food crops. You know, look at, you know, apples are another great example. If you look at actual wild or at least feral varieties of apples, most of them are smaller. We've domesticated and crossbred and genetically cloned apples to become bigger and contain more water content or more sugars. Or maybe a better example is carrots. So the wild carrot is what's known in the florist world as Queen Anne's lace. My wife Marie uses this all the time because she is a florist. So if you've ever seen um, Queen Anne's lace in a bouquet, that is a wild carrot. Um, You can only harvest wild carrot about the first year it's um, grown because it gets extremely woody. Um, And it's a very small root uh, vegetable. Um, And so you have to get it when it's very young and still tender. It is extremely robust in its flavor. That kind of um, very root-esque taste of a carrot, multiply that by like 50, and you'll kind of get an idea of what a wild carrot actually tastes like. But the same deal. We have domesticated the carrot to be bigger, more uniform, and have more water, and you take out a lot of those especially bitter compounds and kind of more astringent compounds, which contain the medicines in those foods. So these foods become less medicinal, less nutritious for the body. And by doing that, it means you need a lot more of them to get some type of nutritional benefit. I hope that makes sense. And again, back to being vegan, if you tried to sustain a diet of wild plants, there's no way you could eat that amount of astringent, bitter, robust compounds in a day and get enough calories in. The only way you can do that is eating these kind of watered-down, neutered version of these vegetables. So if you look at hunter-gatherers or even part-time horticulturalists uh, before the Neolithic Revolution, you'll often see that they consumed less plants and less root vegetables and things like that because they didn't need as many. Those plants contained far, far more nutrition than our domesticated counterparts that we have today. And so, yes, they may have consumed less, but their nutrition from those was far greater than we can even come close to a lot of times today, even on a vegan diet. So really what I'm getting at is the environment that food is grown in matters I don't want to say more than the food itself, but it creates the nutrition you get from it. Environment matters an extreme amount. So when looking at overall diet, it's far more nuanced and far more complicated than signing up for Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig. And a lot of those ultra kind of fad diets, South Beach diet, any of those, a lot of those have to do with counting calories, which is arguably the most ridiculous practice you could do while 
quote-unquote on a diet. It can be useful for very, very basic data, maybe once or twice a year. But if that's all you're doing is tracking calories, that is a practice that ends up taking you out of your body. It is just another, it ends up being another distraction to distract you from how you're actually feeling. It's almost as silly as a Fitbit. <laughs> Not to rail on Fitbits or counting steps, but that's another um, pretty useless process of using kind of reductionist data to monitor your health. You shouldn't have to use technology to monitor your health. You should know how you feel. And if you don't, that means you're extremely disconnected with your body and your natural environment around you. And that should be the lesson taken from those. If you need a Fitbit to prove that you're healthy or you need to count calories to prove that you're healthy, you're heading down the wrong road and a road that you're never going to actually last on. You're never going to actually be able to continue that through your entire life. We're talking about a lifelong process of developing an inner knowing and an inner relationship with yourself and with the foods that you're taking into your body. It's a lifelong pursuit. You don't do it in 30 days. You don't do it on a Whole30 diet. You can't change your behavior or change your biology and physiology in 22 days, which is what a lot of the studies have tried to prove is that all you need to do is stick to a diet for 22 days and you can change your behavior. But that may be true for some habits, but when it comes to food and what it takes to nourish a body, that isn't exactly that black and white. It's not that true. It's not sustainable to start cutting things out and approaching diet from lack rather than an additive diet where you're adding in the good things and eventually the bad things that you're putting into your body, the things that aren't extremely of nutrient value, they start to fade away, which has always been my approach to getting people to change their behavior around food and around eating, is add in the good stuff, slow and steady, and eventually you'll start to feel better, and your skin is going to start to look better, and then you're not going to start to crave all of the ultra-processed foods. You're going to want to go to some dried fruit with some dark chocolate rather than a bunch of ice cream after dinner. Because you know what happens if you eat too much dried fruit? Yeah, you know what happens. You're not going to do that all the time. Whereas if you eat a bunch of ice cream, yeah, you might have a stomach ache, but you're going to get this intense hit of processed sugar and your body's going to crave more. That's what your body does. I mean, companies know this. That's why they formulate this stuff. I have a degree in food science. I know exactly what they do and how they get people addicted to the foods that they create. Natural foods, you don't have an, as an intense reaction or intense craving for them because they need to be balanced. Otherwise, you start to have essentially reactions to those foods. When you eat too many nuts or too many fibrous fruits, you're going to have major diarrhea, and you're not going to want to do that all the time. Your body can't sustain that. But these ultra-processed foods, they've engineered all that stuff out. Yeah, you may gain weight and it's unhealthy, but you can eat that stuff for quite a while and it's a slow build. It's a slow build of packing on the pounds. 
over years and years and years of eating this stuff. They're masters at it. This is what they do. You can't get people too unhealthy too quickly, otherwise they wouldn't eat the stuff. There was this cracker that was produced in the early 2000s, and it was meant to be an alternative to trans fat when they were still putting a lot of trans fat in ultra-processed foods, and they used this chemical component um, called Olestra. And what it did was it didn't bind into the fat receptors of the body, but what it did was it caused major diarrhea, and they tried to market this in um, different processed foods, and people were getting massive diarrhea, so they had to outlaw it. So there are experiments with this stuff, whereas if it's coming from a natural source, you know it's been worked out through millenniums, and generations have sustained themselves on this stuff. It's a very different approach. It's going to change your body on a cellular level. The more you interact with whole nutritious foods, especially wild foods, it's going to start to change everything about your body. The trick is not going too quickly into thinking that you can will power your way through all of this because you can't. The average person sticks to a diet for less than six weeks. It's about four to five weeks, which again is why the Whole30 diet exists because the new adherence to a diet was just over 30 days. So if you create a diet plan that's 30 days, you know people are going to go off of it. And what are they going to do? They're going to remember how they felt in those 30 days because they changed their physiology slightly into a more nutritious diet, and they felt better. Of course they did. Of course they felt better. And then they're going to want to go back to that, and they're going to go in and out of that cycle for years possibly. And that's a really good moneymaker. That's a really good diet plan. You shouldn't be planning a diet. If you're part of a diet plan, then you've um, lost some perspective on what food is. Food is an intimate, intimate relationship. One that should be taken with, in my opinion, extreme reverence and extreme respect. It shouldn't come out of a prepackaged meal kit that's shipped to your doorstep. And I'm not advocating that you go live in the woods and try to live off the land because that's honestly not possible anymore. But there needs to be a balance, a mix of food that is properly grown in a natural landscape. Tending the wild is a great concept where even hunter-gatherer populations did a bit of gardening. They had to, to encourage crop growth. But they encouraged wild plants to grow, which is what a lot of people in this kind of regenerative agriculture space are now doing, is they're encouraging native plant populations that are bringing in native animal populations. And if they're farming cattle, they're doing it in a very sustainable way, where it's benefiting the land and regenerating the land. All these are wonderful practices that's going to produce way better food and food that's way closer to what humans have been biologically eating for the last 300,000 years. I mean, remember, we have only been on this agricultural experiment for the last 10, maybe 12,000 years. 
that is no time at all. And these very extreme diets or these fad diets that we've been talking about have only been done for a generation or two. I mean, remember, veganism has only been done since 1944. It's literally started in 1944. No other culture has ever been vegan. There's been a lot of vegetarians, but they had animal foods. So remember that these are extremely new. And if you feel good on a vegan diet, that's great. But how are your grandkids going to feel if you go a couple of generations only eating domesticated plants? And how are generations going to be sustained on just domesticated plant species? I guarantee you it's not going to go very well. Or how are generations going to be sustained on just meat with zero plants, right? It's not going to go well. There's going to be malnourishments. So it's not just about your diet. When you're thinking about the food you're taking in, you should be thinking about the genetics you're passing down to your future family members, the genetics you're passing down to your line, because ultimately that's what food was about. It was about sustaining the population. It was about creating healthy individuals, robust individuals, so they could make it through the elements and make it through year after year. Oh man, that's what food should be, right? That's a very different outlook than counting calories or weighing in at Weight Watchers. You see what I mean? It changes the whole thing. It changes everything when you look at it from that perspective. And sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes that's all you need is a slight little perspective change. And I think we've got so lost in what food should mean and the meaning of food that we've made it very individualistic. We've lost the community aspect of food. We don't even sit around a dinner table anymore, which I think is... A massive mistake, and I think it's a mistake that we are seeing played out right now in the health of especially Western worlds. And it's going to be very important for the generations ahead to have a healthy idea of what food actually means in not only an individual nutrient level, but a community level. That's what we should be focused on. So this move towards food sovereignty is crucial. It's been crucial in my own life. This is why I got into hunting and why I fish and why I forage plants. It stirs something inside me beyond anything else. The fact that I can bring home food off of the landscape to my family and share that with my friends is one of the most gratifying things that I can possibly do. I feel that it's one of the most worthy pursuits of just about anything. And it brings a story. It brings a story of community. Not only community with the people you're gathered around eating it with, but a species-driven community. And what I mean by that is it's not an individualistic approach to food. You're not in this kind of hierarchical approach of eating only meat or only vegetables. You start to view food at a kingdom level or at an individual species level instead of saying that plants are more valuable than animals or that one thing is more valuable than another. It's 
all valuable. It should all be treated as sacred. Because if it isn't, then what's it all doing here, right? The fact that vegans feel less guilty for killing plants than they do killing animals, to me is absolutely ridiculous. Because I feel just as torn about picking mushrooms or wild fennel as I do hunting a deer. I feel the same gratitude towards those species. I feel the same amount of pride and gratefulness gathering acorns on the landscape as I do harvesting meat or fishing trout. I don't place things in a hierarchical order like that. And the fact that we've done that, we've lost that community's that community-driven approach to food. We lost that lovingness for an overall species and made it much more of a individual reductionist approach. And I get it. Killing things is hard. It's messy. But the reality of life and the reality of this earth is that things have to die for other things to live. That it is just how it's done. And once you start putting a value over certain things to be killed and leaving other things to be alive, once you start having your sacred cow, it changes the entire relationship with food on the earth. It changes the entire approach. And I get it. I understand why cultures had their sacred cow. I think that's important. I think that that shows a reverence, a gratefulness towards a species, which is fantastic. But I think it can become very overblown. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today, where you can honor a species by building your own body out of it. That's how you should be honoring it, whether it's plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, algae, or protist. You should be honoring all of it. And realize it takes all of those to really live a biologically sustainable, healthy life for generations. You may be able to get away with it for a generation, possibly two, but believe me, If you try to keep a limited diet like that and sustain it for generations, it will not work. It is impossible. So the choice is yours, really. And how are you going to view it all? How are you going to view this complex relationship we all have with food? Okay, I don't really know how we ended up on this tangent uh, because this podcast was more directed towards fad dieting, but I'm glad we got here because it's really at the heart of all of this. It's at the heart of why diets even exist in this modern age to begin with. I think it comes from a place of true disconnection. And we've talked a lot about disconnection from the elements and from the natural world around us. And I don't think food is isolated from that. And as I said, in the next few weeks, we are going to take a look at kind of the most popular fad diets. We're going to get kind of more detailed in 
what they are and what they're all about, the ins and outs of them, what's good about them, what's bad about them. Um, But I just wanted to give you this general overview of how these even have sprung up in this modern age and kind of, I guess, my take on what it all means and where it's all going. So stay tuned. There's more to come with dieting, but I hope this gives you a general overview and gives you a little bit of direction. And again, my approach is always, always just starting by adding in a little bit more food that is connected to the natural landscape. If you can get wild fish, get wild fish. If you can get hand-processed wild rice from native tribes that have been doing it for generations, that's a fantastic food to be eating. And there's a story there. There's a communal story there. And I think one that needs to be celebrated. I'll talk more about um, differences between wild and domesticated foods as we go along here. But to start thinking um, a little bit more about that can start to shift things pretty dramatically. And before we wrap things up, I just wanted to let you guys know, if you have any questions or comments, or you have any recommendations for guests that you would like to hear on upcoming episodes, then please feel free to email me at info at ancestralelements.com and we can start to develop this podcast a little bit more in 2021. So as always, thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking with you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening.